Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. This WBEZ podcast is supported by Ravinia, with over 100 concerts under the stars this summer, including Daryl Hall and Elvis Costello, Nora Jones with special guest Mavis Staples, the Beach Boys with special guest John Stamos, Shaggy and TLC, Jason Isbell and the 400 Unit, the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, and more. Their 30-acre park is nestled in a gently wooded area. Bring your own picnic or eat at one of the park restaurants. Tickets available now only at ravinia.org. Hi, I'm Jen White, and this is Reset. Later on, we'll talk with photographer Lee Bay. His new book, Southern Exposure, highlights architecture on Chicago's south side. I'm still mad that Malcolm X College got demolished. On the west side, beautiful modernist building, Afrocentric in nature and intent, and it gets torn down without hackle ways by the preservation movement, and I want that kind of stuff to stop. Right now, let's get you caught up with the latest on the teacher strike, which has reached its third school day. Over the weekend, we had some real progress at the table. We're not there yet, but we had some real progress. Every single day that they're not in school um, is a problem. Um, They need to be in class. We want to settle as quickly as possible, but we're not going to settle for a fast contract if it's not a just contract. We're not hearing no anymore. We're not hearing silence anymore, and, and that's good. Could they have not kept negotiating while the kids were in school? We heard from CTU President Jesse Sharkey, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, CTU Chief of Staff Jennifer Johnson, CTU Vice President Stacey Davis-Gates, and Black Community Collaborative's Kay Winding. For the latest on the strike, keep it tuned to 91.5 WBEZ or follow us on Twitter. We're at WBEZ Reset. Over the weekend, WBEZ's Dan Mihalopoulos and Dave McKenney broke news of a federal raid at the downtown offices of the City Club of Chicago back in May. And they've learned that Illinois House Speaker Michael Madigan was among the 10 to 20 people named in a subpoena to the group at that time. The president of City Club is a top lobbyist for ComEd. Dan starts things off by explaining what the City Club is and what it does. It's an organization that's very, very prominent in civic circles. Anybody who's anybody uh, and wants to run for anything in this state will go through the City Club and and try to um, pitch this uh, crowd of movers and shakers over lunch at Maggiano's. And today, Kwame Raul, the attorney general, is there. Uh, so the show goes on. So you mentioned Jay Doherty is a, a top lobbyist for ComEd. What else can you tell us about his work for the company? So we believe that uh, the feds are looking at whether he played a role in the sort of allegations of things we've seen in other parts of government, but maybe not in the public utilities uh, so much, at least not in a federal corruption probe uh, that I can recall. And again, ghost payrolling, basically pay to play. And essentially what they're looking at is whether jobs and contracts were given at ComEd to politicians or politically connected people in exchange for official actions that benefited ComEd 
such as rate increases, which would be hugely significant to all of us and 4 million other ComEd customers across northern Illinois. They have a virtual monopoly. We were just looking at the map the other day from the one side of the state to the other, east to west, and then down to uh, Pontiac. One thing to remember, these, as, as Dan mentions here, ComEd has a robust legislative agenda. In 2016, there was legislation that got signed by the governor, at that point, Bruce Rauner. I mean, it was really kind of only one of the things that, that Democrats and Republicans could come around under the Rauner administration. And that increased rates. It, it helped support some of the, the financial difficulties that their nuclear plants were having, uh, Exelon's nuclear plants were having. And then there was also a, a follow-up piece of legislation that, that was kicking around that would have also been a boon potentially for ComEd that did not go anywhere in late May. And there was this belief that it might resurface in uh, the veto session coming up at the end of this month. It, it stalled. What's interesting about this whole angle that we believe the feds are looking into with political hires and political contracting at ComEd is that this is all kind of you know, under the radar screen. I mean, it's different than a campaign contribution that a utility company or any other entity would make where you can go online with a few keystrokes, see who's contributing to whom. There's no disclosure of any of this anywhere. If it plays out the way that some are seeing this play out, I mean, it it could constitute a favor to a legislator, say, if a legislator's relative or boyfriend or girlfriend or or, or child gets hired. One of the central figures in all of this, Marty Sandoval, state senator, his office got raided. His daughter, Angie, works at the the utility company. She's been accused of no wrongdoing, but that gives a hint of what – what is in play here? Well, and we should say ComEd and Exelon Executive Ann Pramajori abruptly announced her retirement from the company last week. Dan, what do we know about that? It's a pretty big deal when you're talking about somebody that was paid $6 million in total compensation last year and is looking at a, a golden parachute of, I think, $7.7 million. Uh, that's a, a high-level position. This is someone who spoke, by the way, at the City Club five times over the years, was introduced by Jay Doherty. I didn't see any disclosure by him when he was introducing her and lauding ComEd uh, that he's a lobbyist for ComEd, much less that they were raided over his connections to ComEd and, and over um, issues that had to do with Madigan. But yeah, it's it's a pretty big deal. And she wasn't the only one that's quit there recently. Uh, you talk about Angie Sandoval. She's apparently still in the government affairs office, but guy who was her boss, I think, named uh, Fidel Marquez, and another guy who was there for a long time named John Hooker have left. Um, Fidel Marquez uh, was left earlier this month from ComEd. John Hooker had been a, a former executive and a lobbyist for them, and he cut ties with a lobbying firm that he worked for uh, that is headed, by the way, uh, coincidentally or not, by the, the lawyer for Mike Madigan, a guy named Mike Casper. So ComEd is the state's largest electric utility company, as you both mentioned. But how does Michael Madigan fit into all of this, Dave? Well, I mean, he's, he's operating the levers of power. I mean, if you, if you want to get anything passed in Springfield, you have to go th- right through his office. And so the legislation we mentioned earlier in, in 2016, of course, had to pass the House of Representatives. So in Madigan, he is a fulcrum, really, and a real pivot point to all of this. You know, his his history before several years ago, I mean, he, he had positioned himself kind of as a critic of ComEd and then came around and, and allowed this legislation to move forward in his chamber. And so it's quite intriguing that the government is is zeroing in apparently on Madigan here to see what his dealings were with that company and others around it. Now, w- one of the little bit of intrigue that Dan and I uh, and Tony Arnold uncovered was that with Jay Doherty, he is involved in a lobbying partnership 
uh, for another company, another entity called Catalyst Consulting. And his lobbying partner there is a, is a gentleman named Jordan Matches, who is this, the speaker's son-in-law. So that's another kind of just bit of intrigue about you know the connections that all of these people seem to have. You know, Madigan, ComEd. Uh, the City Club. It's just, it's all kind of woven together. Well, you know, agents have been seeking records on Michael Madigan on several fronts now. You've reported on raids at the homes of, of Madigan operatives, uh, Kevin Quinn and Michael Zaleski. He's a retired Chicago alderman, among others. What does this mean for Speaker Madigan and his leadership of the House? I, I think it's very interesting. Uh, the City Club raid, uh, looking at Jay Doherty, the ComEd lobbyist, Mike Zaleski, former alderman from Mike Madigan's part of town, who they were allegedly trying to to help uh, line up with some post-retirement work there at ComEd. You mentioned the operative uh, Kevin Quinn. There's also another guy named Mike McLean, who was very, very close to the speaker and was ComEd's lobbyist for many years, was praised uh, quite lavishly by Mike Madigan when he retired from ComEd, at least officially, as their lobbyist a couple of years ago. All these things happened at the same time in May, and then you have further raids more recently, again, in Mike Madigan's neck of the woods in a couple of south suburbs. Uh, not sure that that's connected yet to the to the speaker, but the raid at uh, Marty Sandoval's office, one of the most prominent Democrats on the Senate side of the Capitol, um, all of this is adding up to a, a potentially toxic stew for a guy who, as Dave points out, is the longest serving uh, head of a state legislative chamber in the country's history. That's WBEZ government and politics reporters Dan Mihalopoulos and Dave McKinney. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Jen. This is Reset. I'm Jen White. The south side of Chicago is often characterized as a blighted, even derelict part of the city. Architectural expert and photographer Lee Bay knows differently. In his new book, Southern Exposure, the Overlooked Architecture of Chicago's South Side, Bay showcases photographs of and the history behind 60 architectural sites that embody the diversity and beauty of architecture on the south side. And Lee Bay joins us in studio to tell us about the book. Welcome, Lee. Thank you. Good to be here. So, what was the the broad idea behind this book? How did you even get started on this project? Well, you know, it began in 2017 as part of the 2017 Architecture Biennial. And um, the idea was to sort of present images of the South Side and to sort of show the city, uh, the part of the city kind of as I see it. And then as I'm putting that together, the idea for the book came to me. I didn't come to it. Uh, Jill Petty, who's a was acquisitions editor at the at Northwestern University Press, we have a kind of chance conversation, and she says, "You want to write a book? What are you thinking about?" And I says, "I don't know. I'm doing this exhibit." She says, "The exhibit is your book." Uh, so then the idea was to really, you know, was to expand upon the exhibit, of course, more images, show more of the South Side than the exhibit did, uh, but also kind of get into the history of Chicago and its treatment of the South Side. You say in one of your early chapters that the South Side contains the finest collection of architecture, parks, and green space in Chicago outside of downtown. And then you say, if you disagree, fight me. That's right. Fight me. <laughs> Put up those dukes. I'm ready to go. You know, and, and it's, it's truth. I mean, once you get out of downtown and you look at the South Side, first of all, the size of it, you know, it's a big container. You can put a lot of stuff in it. So schools and open space and residential uh, places. And it's all done, mostly done to a really high quality. You look at neighborhoods like South Shore, West Pullman, um, even neighborhoods that may be in some physical distress like Englewood, 
you take a look at some of the buildings, Yale Apartments uh, at 65th and Yale, and, and some others, is really high-quality arch- architecture there. Southside kind of has these kind of three lives. It kind of combusts itself into existence as, uh, as an industrial mecca. Homes are built there. Then at mid-century, the parts of the South Side that aren't built get built. So you get places like Pill Hill with these fine modernist houses and Mary Nook and, and parts of Chatham. And then now, I think, a current sort of renaissance in a way through infrastructure with L stations and bridges over Lakeshore Drive, that kind of thing. Well, it's clear this book is a bit of a love letter mm-hmm. uh, to the South Side. What did it mean for you personally to have the opportunity to really, I guess, express your, your love and passion for the South Side through your camera? It felt good as a, as a, as a homeboy, right, who uh, grew up in Avalon Park and uh, live, lives today in Pullman, to be able to show people, you know, what many people that I've met, what I've told, I'll say, you know, you really should check out the architecture of the South Side, and people often don't for the reasons we talk about in the book, the reasons you t- we've talked about in the station many a times. People are afraid, they think there's crime, they think we'll get shot up or whatever. Uh, so to be able to take the time to shoot this and show it in a loving way, Southern Exposure is kind of a play on words, the title, you know, in this hemisphere, a room with a Southern Exposure is, has a complimentary view. The sun comes in the right way. And it's kind of what I wanted to convey in this book as well. You know, but it gets personal a bit. I mean, it wasn't my intention to write about my father and his introduction, yeah. him introducing me to architecture. Someone I knew suggested that I do that, said, you know, I like when you tell the stories about your father. Maybe you should put that in there. And uh, it's a little emotional, right? You know, putting that in, uh, in in parts. And even now to read, it, it's a good, but I had to do a, a reading out loud about a month ago. And I got to the part where my, where my well, it doesn't give much away, but where my father passes away. And I must admit, you know, some 40 years later, got a little choked up, you know? So, um, but it was good to be able to explain the South Side in that way, that I'm not just some architecture guy talking about it, but I'm, I feel rooted in the subject. Well, Chicago is known as, as an architecture city. Mm-hmm. But when you think about the critical discussion about architecture in Chicago, the South Side is largely absent. Mm-hmm. Why is that? You know, I think it's race. I don't know people get uncomfortable with that with that notion sometimes. But, you know, even when, when doing the research for the book, you could see looking at old newspapers that when a neighborhood turned black, the narrative shifted. It was no longer about the architecture, no longer about what was being built. It became about crime and disinvestment. And I think civically the city does that, has done that for years, that when, neighbor, when a neighborhood, when an area turns black, it turns us back on in a way. And, and there is disinvestment. And when there is interventions in terms of urban planning, it's done with a bulldozer. But the book argues that this is no longer a sustainable way of doing business in this city, that, that, that Chicago can't be a world-class city and turn its back on the south and west sides of, of, of town. The photos in the book are just are stunning. And, and I'm you. curious, how did you go about choosing the sites uh, for the book? I tried to find sites. And there's, you know, that book could have been as thick as a unabridged dictionary. It could have been 10 <laughs> times thicker than that and still would have touched it all. I, I tried to find buildings that I thought would surprise people, mm-hmm. that they existed at all, let, let alone on the south side. Uh, I tried to find buildings that had some visual beauty. I also wanted to stay away from abandoned buildings. We've had this discussion before about photographers who do fantastic work, but they concentrate on vacant and derelict buildings. I do put one in there at the last minute. I think it's the last building I shot, which is um, the old Lou Palmer Mansion, Lou and Georgia Palmer Mansion on, on King Drive, because I want something positive to happen to that building. 
everyone asks about the cover, which is the D'Angelo Law Library, which is also you know, obviously in the book. And, and that came because I was I was reading a um, I was watching a documentary on Saarinen, Errol Saarinen, who designed this building, right? You know, one of the celebrated architects of the 20th century. And I'm watching this documentary, and his son is a producer, a co-producer of it, and they're showing all of his work. And I'm thinking, okay, where's the law library? They show all of his college work, his collegiate work, and the next thing I know, the credits are rolling. I thought, what, what, what? <laughs> what happened to the law library? And in my mind, I thought, well, if a, a Saarinen can get quote unquote lost on the South Side, then any building is mm. is uh, is possibly that it, that it can happen. That's, so that's why I wound up on the cover. Oh, in the book, and then the uh, the cover um, was designed by Marianne Jankowski at North, Northwestern Press, who just knocked it out the park with putting that on the cover. One of the goals of the book is to, I guess, retell or recharacterize the city's popular narratives mm-hmm. of the South Side. Tell us how you view the South Side. What is it for you? For me, it's home. And it's a place where people, you know, start businesses, fall in love, buy their first homes, send their kids off with pride uh, to high schools there. All those things. And these are all the things that often don't get told as much uh, in the the the, uh, the popular narrative about the South Side. You know, I've got a, a sister. I'm going to poke fun of her. My older sister, she, I'm still the baby brother, you know, at 54. Always. <laughs> I turned yesterday. And um, and when she hears about some of the, the funky things happening on the South Side, I'm, she, she's convinced that I'm in the middle of it somehow, you know, cowering in the corner or a knife fight or whatever it is. And I say, you know, we grew up on the South Side. We're not all killing each other over here. But uh, but uh, but just to sort of show it in, in this way, not to say that that other thing doesn't exist, but to say that it exists in a larger context. And once we understand that as a city, I think we begin. We, we can begin to, you know, we, we, we all like the narrative of the guy years ago who was the homeless guy and it turns out he had this beautiful baritone voice and he could be an announcer and, and he was. Once we saw that he was more than homeless, which is not to say that's a good way to look at things, but, but once we saw the fullness of his humanity, then we began to say, well, look, there's something different ought to happen with this brother. We ought to take care of him a little better. Same with the south and west sides of the city. Once we see civically that it's more to it than what we've been told, my hope is we can render the aid and the help and the investment that needs to be there and let the people who live there who know what's happening and know how to save these communities, let them do their jobs. Well, then going through the book, one of the things I, I picked up on is that you're trying to start a conversation not just about reinvestment and development, but about preservation. Mm-hmm. Talk about the importance of preservation. Chicago has a very mature preservation movement, has for the past 40, 50 years. And oftentimes on the South Side, it skips parts of the South Side, right? I mean, we don't see, we see these great buildings come down and, and there isn't the preservation battle there as it is when we see a building on the North Side or, or South or uh, downtown come down. And, and I want the preservation movement mechanism in the city, more elements in it to pay attention to, to these parts of the city. That buildings do come down, homes, West Inglewood's almost all vacant. These homes that, that come down, these public buildings that come down. I'm still mad that Malcolm X College got demolished mm-hmm. on the west side. Beautiful modernist building, Afrocentric in nature and intent, and it gets torn down without hackle raised by the preservation movement. And I want that kind of stuff to stop. You point out that the south side of Chicago is 142 square miles, mm-hmm. which is the size of the city of Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That can be daunting if someone says, you know what? Yeah, I want to go check this out. Where would you tell people to start 
a tour to learn about architecture on the South Side. The lakefront communities along the South Side are, are good. I mean, from Bronzeville up and through South Shore uh, are, are fantastic. Depending on what kind of architecture you like, if you like modernist architecture like I do, uh, finding some of those homes in Chatham is fine. So, yeah, I, I would say the lakefront communities and kind of work your way south, uh, further south and further west. How does architecture, and, and especially the buildings you photograph for your book, how does it help us understand a more complete history of the South Side? You know, if we study it the right way, we find out a couple of things. That the narrative of black of the black experience, for instance, in the city, isn't just we, we moved here, whites left, there was white flight, and now we're all robbing each other on the South Side. That there are communities where, you know, things are bad happening and, and that that was made, and it was made civically, and that we as a city signed off on policies and elected people to, who enacted policies that closed schools on Moss and, and health centers and, and disinvested it, tore down the L on 63rd Street, all these things. And now we're beginning to pay the price for it. You know, this station covers very well about the property tax and other tax increases that we're going to have to face. We're paying the price for turning our back on 60% of the city, of turning our back on our Philadelphia, if you will, size-wise. And just like if the stick-up man takes your money, the way to, to be hold again is to get your wallet back from him. I think the same thing has to happen here, that if the South Side, the city's going to be whole, we're going to have to invest in these areas to the tune that we stole from these areas a generation ago. And it's hard, but it has to happen, and we're going to spend the money anyway. Police overtime, lawsuits, all these kind of things, we're going to spend the money anyway. So let's spend it the right way and bring these areas back. That's Lee Bay, Chicago architecture expert and author of the new book, Southern Exposure, The Overlooked Architecture of Chicago's South Side. Lee, it's always great to talk to you. Same here. Thank you. Other stories we're following today in the WBEZ newsroom. The Bears dropped to 3-3 three and three after a dismal outing yesterday, but the Chicago Red Stars, the city's women's pro soccer team, won their game and they're headed to the championships. Plus, Northwestern has just won a $10 million grant. The money will go to a project involving an implant that would prevent opioid overdoses. And again, get up to the minute information on the Chicago Teachers Union strike by following us at WBEZ Reset, or you can follow our crack education team. They're tweeting out at WBEZ Education. But that's it for today's Reset. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening and let's talk again soon. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.